Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are reactions from both the AFC and NFC Championship, and early thoughts on the Super Bowl. Plus, what does the future hold for three of the top quarterbacks in the NFL? And, should the NBA really try to have an all-star game? It's episode 11 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Thursday, January 28th, 2021, we welcome you once again to the newest edition of the podcast, Let Me Speak. We've got a tremendous lineup of topics, a lot of interesting takes, so let's get right into it as we now know what the Super Bowl is going to look like, and we'll talk about the AFC and NFC championships, and obviously the first game on that championship Sunday was the NFC game between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Green Bay Packers. What a surprising result, at least for me personally, to see Tampa Bay beat Green Bay 31-26. to Now, I will say, watching the game early on, Tampa just looked like they were clicking on all cylinders in terms of offense. They just came out firing. They had 351 yards in the game. Near the end, though, there were still a little bit of questions as to if they could really punch it in, get those solidified scores. But hey, when you were up 28-10, to maybe that's all you needed. They sealed it up and got themselves to be the first team to host the Super Bowl. That's right, they're going to be playing in the Super Bowl in their home stadium. And just the perspective on Tom Brady, what, what a career. I'm just absolutely stunned. And this isn't the New England Patriots fan inside of me coming out. This is the NFL football fan looking at greatness that probably will never be reimagined or accomplished yet again. I mean, Tom Brady, he's 43 years old. All right, he spent 20 seasons in New England. And now here in his first season with a whole new team, a whole new franchise, new coaching staff, players... He finds himself once again in the Super Bowl for the 10th time. The 10th time. Unbelievable. It is absolutely stunning. You know, normally you have like a maybe a coach or like a player who's like a veteran presence in the locker room. But this is Tom Brady who's been playing at the highest level of his career. And he's 43. I see no slowdown for him I don't see any slowdown with Tom Brady the only thing that would slow him down would be if he kept making poor decisions like a couple of those interceptions late in the second half that's really the big thing for Tom Brady that would be slowing him down and if he just says you know what I've done all I need to do and I'm out of here because I mean most guys when they get six championships like Michael Jordan you have six championships and you head out the door Tom just loves the game so much. So it's just incredible to see what Tom Brady 
is doing with this team. Now, on the other side, though, for the Packers, uh, I, I feel so bad because Aaron Rodgers, he's one of these players where you feel like he should have more championship opportunities, right? He should have more Super Bowl rings. But the decision was basically taken out of his hand by head coach Matt LaFleur. And I honestly feel like the Packers lost this game more than the Buccaneers won this game. And, of course, everyone's talking about the decision to kick the field goal before the two-minute warning with three timeouts left on fourth and goal. And it is that decision that is the subject of our newest segment that we debuted last week, known as Hot Takes. So let's just assemble what the situation was. Fourth and goal, inside the 10. And Aaron Rodgers, you could say, yeah, he had that open right side. He could have run it in. But you don't know that. No one knows. So he tried to throw it. It was incomplete. And so Coach Matt LaFleur decides to take the three points, go down five, and hope for a stop with three timeouts left. You got to understand that this Buccaneers offense has dominated for, let's say, maybe 35 to 40 minutes of that game. And you're trusting your defense? Your defense to stop them? I understand that defense wins championships, but we're talking about Tom Brady. We're talking about this Bucks offense that was top 10 pretty much all season long in the NFL. All right, Matt LaFleur should not should not have kicked that field goal because you are down eight points. You would much rather die on your own sword than give it to your opponent and say, do the job for me. You don't do that because Aaron Rodgers, he's not he's not some lowly quarterback like Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, all of these guys. This is a two-time, possibly three-time MVP. All right, he's one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play this game, and you are taking the decision out of his hands? Aaron Rodgers is a much capable quarterback who could have scored. I know we're going to talk about the what-ifs. What if they didn't score? So let's let's put it at it like this. If Aaron Rodgers, give you give him a shot on fourth and goal, he scores, then you go for the two-point conversion, and you tie the game. If you don't get it, and you turn it over on downs, Tampa's still starting inside their own 10. And not only that, but when you're backed up that hard, your plays are limited, so they wouldn't have been able to pass the ball as much. You would have had to make them run the ball, use all the three timeouts, get the ball back with a shorter field. This is maybe a worse decision than when Doug Peterson benched Jalen Hurts in Week 17. And I know that was our LOL moment, but this is the biggest head-scratcher of them all. Okay, Green Bay was in a position to come back and tie that game. But head coach Matt LaFleur, I don't know if it was instincts, if he had pre-planned this ahead of time, but that was an awful decision. With another quarterback, it may have been different. But I, even even with a quarterback like names I just mentioned, you still have to take a shot for the end zone. It is four down territory when it is that late. 
right before the two-minute warning. That is four-down territory, especially, especially in a conference championship game. And there's so much frustration because everyone knows that this Green Bay team was much better than last year's Packers team who lost to the 49ers in the NFC Championship. This team was so much better. They had the weapons. They had a capable enough defense to stop it. And Matt LaFleur goes and pulls that. A terrible decision by the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. And I think unlike Doug Peterson, it won't cost him his job. But there's definitely a lot of eyebrows to be raised at that man. So then in the second game of the AFC Championship, that was a much more stable game. Not really a close game, but it was definitely entertaining to watch. And honestly, it was just a classic Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City Chiefs performance, beating the Buffalo Bills 38-24. to It was basically, like I said, it's classic. You know, they have a small deficit, 9 to nothing, and then they just take over the game, and it just felt like they were in control the rest of the way. Now, the numbers for this Chiefs offense, I mean, they're becoming standard now, but it's still incredible to watch. I mean, Mahomes, 29 of 38, 325 yards and three touchdowns, a perfect game. Maybe the game of the year for Patrick Mahomes in that performance. But how about the two-headed monster for options that he has? Tyreek Hill, nine receptions, 172 for reception yards. And Travis Kelsey, a baker's dozen receptions, 13, a buck 18 in receiving yards, and two touchdowns. These two are game changers right behind Patrick Mahomes. I mean, Hill... With his speed, Kelsey with his size and his strength. These two are the perfect weapons that you want. And they would be number one options on any team. But they're 1A and 1B for Patrick Mahomes. I would be counting my stars and counting my blessings that they're both on the same team if I was Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. And honestly, even with the muffed punt by Miko Hardman that led to that first Bills touchdown, there really shouldn't have been any panic. Really, the only panic comes for the Chiefs if you're down like 20. That's the thing for this Kansas City team is that they could be down two touchdowns and they'll just giggle and just be like, we're fine. Let's get back into this. Three touchdowns is what you got to do to at least get some momentum to have a chance to beat this team. That's what you have to do. You have to blow them out to definitively beat them because very few have done it within the past calendar year. They've only lost twice, one to the Raiders and then one in week 17 where they rested all of their guys. But on the other side for the Buffalo Bills, you have to feel bad because this is a re-energized fan base and team. What a tremendous year it was for the AFC East champions. And this just feels like a learning experience for Buffalo. All right, They have a very young team. They have a lot of young guys. And honestly, this could just be the beginning for Josh Allen. Because I really think the inexperience of Buffalo just came into play. Having these big time games. We know that the Chiefs have done this before. Literally a year ago. Almost to the date. Buffalo, they hadn't been in this position in 20 years, 
20 years. And they've only just gotten back into the playoffs for consecutive years in that same exact time frame. But Buffalo, I really do think that the future is bright for them. And it almost feels like they're taking one step at a time to eventually get to the top of where they're supposed to be. You know, in Sean McDermott's first year, they make the wild card and they unfortunately drop that game. Then they make it the next year uh, with Josh Allen and they do drop it to the Texans. But again, it's learning. They've learned from that. Then they get to this year into all the way to the AFC Championship. So you almost feel like the next step is to get to the Super Bowl and the step after that is to win the Super Bowl. But I think this Bills team in the early preseason rankings for 2021 are the biggest test for the Chiefs for next year because they can retool, they can get another option on offense beside Stephon Diggs. You can get Zach Moss back. He can be your feature running back, maybe establish a better run game. And not only that, beefing up on defense so you have the players who can stop teams like Kansas City. I'm totally high on Buffalo and the trajectory path that they're taking for years to come. And so with that, we look at Tampa Bay versus Kansas City in Tampa. Buccaneers' first team ever to play the Super Bowl in their home stadium. Now, early thoughts for Super Bowl 55 is that it feels like a shootout is coming because these are two high-profiled offenses, and they've got weapons galore. I mean, I mentioned Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, but how about on Tampa's side? You got Mike Evans, Cameron Bray, Leonard Fournette, Rob Gronkowski, and then more weapons on the Chiefs' side. You have Le'Veon Bell. You have Mecole Hardman. You'll get a healthy Sammy Watkins. For Tampa, you get Antonio Brown back. I mean, there are weapons galore at this team but like we see year in and year out it's all going to be about the defenses and who can make that one big stop and while I do talk about that defense it does feel like this could be a greater scoring matchup than in Super Bowl 52 between the Eagles and the Patriots where it was 41-33 it definitely feels that way and of course the big story is the quarterback battle Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes, part five, okay? Now, this is kind of different because they've split the first four meetings, but Mahomes has won the last two. So you have to think there's a little incentive right there for Mahomes. You know, he was still a young guy when Tom Brady was in his last couple years with the Pats, and he just got the better of him. Now that Mahomes is experienced, he knows what the feeling is like, He's definitely got a lot more confidence in recent years versus Tom Brady. But who knows? Maybe Brady has Mahomes' number. You'd never know about that. But the big thing I'm looking at as well is the loss of left tackle for Kansas City, Eric Fisher. Okay, In the AFC Championship game, he tore his Achilles, and I think that hurts more than most people think. Because your left tackle... That's your edge rushers. Those are the edge rushers for Tampa Bay. And they've got a lot of great rushers. They've got Shaq Barrett. They've got JPP, Jason Pierre-Paul. 
You have Indomitian Sue. You have Devin White. I think Tampa has a good D-line there where they can at least force Mahomes into possibly making some mistakes, but you also have to contain him in the pocket. You can't let him escape and let him do his magic like we've seen since he entered the league. You have to keep him in the pocket. And who knows what that offensive line will do for Kansas City. But, I mean, when you lose a two-time Pro Bowler and Eric Fisher, a former number one pick, I think that hurts a lot more than people think. And who knows what that shift line is going to do about the over-under, how that offensive line is going to look. But all, all I know is that the Chiefs, they're going to have to pull some magic. And they're going to have to keep up with Tampa. And same thing for the Bucks; They have to keep up with Kansas City. But who knows? We're still a week and a half away from Super Bowl 55 in Tampa. And there are plenty of things that can change. Staying with the NFL, we have seen over the past couple of weeks all the drama surrounding some quarterbacks in the NFL that are what I would call maybe at the minimum top 15 quarterbacks between these three. And two of them, I would say at least are in the top 10. And of course, we alluded to it earlier on in the NFC Championship game, but Aaron Rodgers. That's the big question because his post-game comments his post-game comments after the NFC Championship about his future, where he said, quote, I don't know. The reports are coming out that Aaron Rodgers would like an extension. He wants an extension onto his contract. Now, look, think about where his contract is right now. He's due to make just over $23 million in 2021. And then he's slated to get $25.5 million in 2022 and 2023. Those numbers put him behind quarterbacks such as Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, Ryan Tannehill, and Jimmy Garoppolo. That is astronomical considering the type of quarterback that Aaron Rodgers is. We're talking a future first ballot Hall of Famer. And he's saying he wants more money. I mean, for me at least, I think Aaron Rodgers is such a great quarterback that he's got to get paid at the tier level. And we'll look at this also with the situation that just happened to Tom Brady. Tom Brady, in his time in New England, has been taking pay cuts and pay cuts and pay cuts to help the team. And when Tom Brady said, you know what, it's time for me to go get what I've earned. And he goes to Tampa and he gets the money that is deserved of a six-time Super Bowl champion and a three-time NFL MVP. So Aaron Rodgers is looking at that situation and thinking, you know what, I'm just as good as Tom Brady. Give me that kind of money. So I can totally get where Aaron Rodgers is coming from. Now, I ultimately do think that he will stay in Green Bay. I don't think he'll request a trade or anything like that. But I think either one of two things is going to happen. Either Rodgers is going to rethink his statement, thinking about what he doesn't know for the future, or the Packers are just going to bend over backwards for Rodgers and give him whatever he wants. Because that is what you should do 
with a guy like Aaron Rodgers, the talent that he has. All right, even if he wants to go into his 40s and play, he's 37 right now, but if he wants to play longer, Aaron Rodgers right now gives you that best chance to at least get back to the Super Bowl. You've seen what you've done ever since he took the helm. Why would you give that up so you can start thinking about the future now? You have to seamlessly transition, seamlessly transition into getting that young gun like Jordan Love, who you drafted in the first round, to get him acquainted. Now, some of these statements, though, I was thinking about for Rodgers is that it feels like a lot of frustration, too. Because, like I said, he's one of the best quarterbacks, talent-wise, to play in this game. But you have to look at the accolades that he has. He's been to three of the last seven NFC Championship games. And he's lost them all. He's only been to one Super Bowl. And he won it against Pittsburgh in 2011. Alright? I said before in the first segment, he's a two-time MVP. He's the front runner right now to get his third. And he just sees himself as his all-time great. But he doesn't have what everyone works for. And that's to get a championship. And he sees himself as a guy who doesn't have it. And he wants to sell out. And he's thinking maybe it's time for a change. So I completely get that. It's mostly frustration on Aaron Rodgers' point. To see himself time and time and time again get this far only to fall short. And there are plenty of chances over his career that they've been able to to get to the championship. You think about 2015, if they don't blow that lead to the Seattle Seahawks, what would they have done against New England in Arizona? You think about this previous game in Tampa, what would have happened if he went for it on fourth and goal? Do they get the touchdown? I mean, you think about it in the years past with facing the Falcons and facing the 49ers or when they went 15-1 and and lost to the Giants in 2012. This is frustration on Aaron Rodgers' point. But I think he's going to stay with Green Bay at least on those two on those years, on the rest of his contract extension. Cuz I don't see Rodgers going anywhere else, and I don't see Green Bay trading for him even if he does request it. And speaking of requesting for a trade, that brings us to our next quarterback from the Houston Texans, Deshaun Watson. Now it just came out this morning, right before we recorded that Deshaun Watson has formally requested a trade out of Houston. And honestly, looking at what the Texans have done in recent years, it makes sense why he would want out of Houston. I mean, you trade away DeAndre Hopkins. Right now, in the 21st century, probably the worst trade in NFL history. That's an all-pro wide receiver with the size and the hand-eye coordination You could give him any kind of route, and Watson would find him. That would be your one-two punch for years to come. Years to come. And you give him away. How do you think Deshaun Watson feels about that? That organization trading away his number one target. He's probably not going to like that. Then you have former coach Bill O'Brien's leadership. What was he like in the locker room 
I mean, they ultimately finally pulled the plug on him, but it just feels like it's been manifesting for years and years and years about the decisions that he's making. And just ownership just seems to be messy. It just seems like a total mess down in Houston. And I'm very surprised that guys like J.J. Watt, who are capable, have not asked out yet. And honestly, I see Deshaun Watson kind of similar to Aaron Rodgers. He sees himself as a great quarterback, and he wants to be treated like a franchise quarterback in terms of being involved in management decisions. We've heard how unhappy he is about the general manager search or the head coach search and that he's basically had no input in that whatsoever. If you're the franchise quarterback, you at least have a say. Maybe you don't make the decision, but you at least put in some input on those kinds of decisions. And Deshaun Watson apparently wasn't getting that. So I completely understand why he wants out of Houston. Now, the tough part, though, for making a trade is the contract. Okay, Remember, he signed before the 2020 season, four-year, $156 million extension. This was before the 2020 season. And that's on top of his rookie year. So he's got two more years on his rookie deal, then four years on this one. That means you're locked up for six seasons. Six seasons. Would an NFL team take that gamble? Because this is a very difficult contract to move. And I know there are definitely going to be some suitors. But the Texans need to get value out of this. They need to get value out of making a trade. I mean, if you look at teams like the Jets, if the Jets want Deshaun Watson, you tell them we want the number two pick. We want the number two pick, and you can get this quarterback. Or you have teams like the Indianapolis Colts who might need to get multiple pieces in that for Deshaun Watson because everyone thinks high on Watson. Everyone, including me. I think he had a great year this past year for basically a depleted Texans team. I know the offense looked good, but just overall they looked depleted. I think Deshaun Watson, you'll see him on a new team before the 2021 year. I think you'll see him on a new team. Now the last quarterback who's also the target of being moved is Matthew Stafford from the Detroit Lions. Now, if you haven't heard, the Lions have basically told Matt Stafford, we love you, but we are moving on. We're going in a different direction. And honestly, Matthew Stafford is a great talent. Like I said, top 15 quarterback at the minimum for Stafford. And the Lions basically just wasted all of his talent since they drafted him number one in 2009. They basically wasted all his talent because he didn't have any game-changing weapons. No game-changing weapons except one, and that was Calvin Johnson. Now, I understand him retiring early threw a wrench into that whole thing because theoretically, if he did stick around, maybe the Lions get to contention to where they're at. But they don't have any game-changing players around him. Okay, Stafford was carrying the Lions ever since he stepped foot behind center for Detroit. Ever since. And if I'm Matthew Stafford, I'm saying, you know what? I'm in my 30s. 
I need to make value of my last few years, and I want to go to a playoff caliber team. I re- I think the Lions respect him enough where if he put out a team, they would put in that effort to get him going. And I think you have a bunch of playoff caliber teams out there. The three big ones for me, the Patriots, the Colts, and Washington. Those three teams need quarterbacks. Those three teams are looking to make the next step in either rebuilding or taking the next step. I think those teams would be the top three picks. If it were me, if I was Matthew Stafford, I would look at those three teams and I'd say, I want one of them. Because the Patriots, they struggled, but they were 7-9. and nine, And they are definitely going to retool and get aggressive. The Colts just had Phillip Rivers retire. You bring in Matthew Stafford with all of those weapons around him, Stafford can make stuff happen. And Washington, five quarterbacks in 2020. You need some stability. And Washington has a strong defense, much stronger than Detroit. And you can get to the playoffs with that team. But then, of course, you have other teams who need quarterbacks, like the Jets that I mentioned, or the Chicago Bears, the New Orleans Saints, the Denver Broncos. I would say the Jacksonville Jaguars, but... They're going to pick Trevor Lawrence at number one, so they're not going to need a quarterback. But looking at all of this with the amount of quarterbacks that are in the NFL draft and all of the free agent options or the trade options, this quarterback class is stacked. I will say it. It is stacked. And it's going to be really exciting to see who is going to be the man under center for all 32 teams in the NFL come the 2021 season. Next, we move to the association in the NBA, and the big news coming out was that the NBA is trying to work with the Players Association to possibly get themselves an all-star game in March of this year. Let me say that again, a game, not all-star weekend like we see, not all the festivities, but a game down in Atlanta during the midway part of the first half and the second half of the NBA season. Now, here's my question for for management and and Commissioner Adam Silver in the NBA. With the amount of games that have been postponed so far in this NBA season, why do you think it's a good idea to try and play another one? And not only that, with players from different teams and different organizations. Why? How is that a good idea? Is it a financial thing (laughs) is it a financial reason so you can make more money because that's all this is that is all this is in no good way in this time should the nba be trying to get any extra games you have one season to get through and you're barely surviving now with the amount of postponements you have with this game okay in this first half you have to get the season more than the all-star game you can still have all-star voting which i believe opens today so you can vote for your favorite nba all-star you can have voting and you can have a little virtual ceremony but a game a game are you kidding me an exhibition why just so you can showcase the nba's greatest players for financial benefits i don't think so this is not a good idea 
And I'm saying this now at the end of January. This could be completely different at the end of February because we don't know where this pandemic is going to be. If we're going to have enough vaccine doses to start and slowly get ourselves into normal life. We don't know that. We don't know that. But I'm saying right now in this moment on Thursday, January 28th, that playing and hosting an all-star game is not right. It is not beneficial right now. And I don't know why the Players Association would want to say yes to this. Okay, I don't know why Chris Paul would have this meeting and say, you know what, let's have a game. Let's have a game. Let's risk it even more. Because if you play this game, you then go into the second half with possible exposure to maybe a dozen or so teams. Maybe more. Probably more. Do you really want to take that risk? The answer is no. You do not want to take that risk. Even in March, if things are on a downward trend, you do not want to take that risk. Because the number one thing right now for the NBA is completing a season, getting through to the playoffs, and ending the championship on time. On time. Because remember, there was only about two months before teams could get back in an offseason and then start up a new year. Only two months. And we're talking about the Lakers and the Heat who made the NBA Finals. Some of the teams had longer periods of time. But again, an all-star game right now is not beneficial. It's not. It is too risky. Because think about the multiple postponements we've seen with the Celtics and the Grizzlies and the Wizards. Do you really want to risk more of that? I say no. This is not a good idea. Not a good idea. You can have a virtual sort of thing. Maybe what I liked at the beginning of this was on ESPN, the virtual little horse tournament between NBA players, legends, WNBA players. I like that. Why not have a little bit of that? Why not do a virtual thing? Maybe a free throw contest or a virtual three-point shootout. That would be fun. That would be really fun. A virtual sort of festivity like that, like a slam dunk contest or a virtual three-point shootout. That would be a lot of fun. I would definitely tune in to watch that. And it can be done virtually. It can be done. So I think doing that virtually with like a two-week break in between the first half and the second half and pulling all this together, I see no issue in taking that route rather than trying to play an all-star game. It's just not ideal. Not ideal at this time. And it's going to be a very contagious couple of weeks where the NBA and the Players Association will have to agree Is playing an all-star game going to be fun, a duty, or is it going to be risky in a pandemic? Moving on to a special Let's Get Local of the week. And I say special because I believe this is going to be the first time where all four Boston teams are going to be talked about in the same segment. Because they're all making headlines in one way or another. And this is 
very historic, especially here on this podcast, because we get to talk about the four major sports teams. And we'll start, again, going back to the NFL, in the vision that the New England Patriots have right now. Because their former quarterback, their former franchise quarterback, Tom Brady, who spent 20 seasons with this Patriots team, how should they feel after seeing their former quarterback and their former tight end and Rob Gronkowski go to the Super Bowl? And I will just give you a one-word answer on it. The Patriots should feel foolish. Foolish. And I will tell you why. Because Tom Brady has shown that it was all him. That he didn't need Bill Belichick as much as Bill Belichick and the Patriots needed him. Okay? Now... For fans, they're either one of two things. They're either angry that he left and don't want them to win, or they're rooting for him to have success. But the Patriots, in his last seasons, just set him up to drive him out. They set him up because they did not put the proper weapons around him. Because look what Tom Brady can do when he has a bunch of established wide receivers, okay? Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Rob Gronkowski, Antonio Brown, Cameron Bray, Scotty Miller, Leonard Fournette, Ronald Jones. That's a that's eight pieces. I can't think of one Patriots team that had more than two ultra strong weapons on offense. Because look at the the receivers that he's had. And I would say during his time with the Patriots that that Tom Brady's only had six, about six game changing wide receivers. I would say that in his whole career. On that list, I would put Troy Brown, Randy Moss, Wes Welker, Julian Edelman, and Rob Gronkowski. That was five, actually. I meant five, not six. Whatever, I can't count. What Tom Brady was able to do with all of the other weapons that he had, okay? Look at the weapons like Chris Hogan, Danny Amendola, Jabbar Gaffney, Dante Stallworth, Brandon Cooks, Brandon LaFell, Brandon Lloyd, I mean, just think about all the weapons that Tom Brady had, and where are they now? Where are they in their career? You have some who are just barely surviving on their new teams, and the others are completely out of the league, not even on an NFL practice squad. It is clear that this Patriots team needed Brady more than Brady needed that team. But hey, this this opinion could change if the Patriots get a quarterback, They retool on offense and get themselves back into the playoffs. It could change. But at this moment, Tom Brady clearly won the departure. Clearly won the departure. Because he's in the Super Bowl again. He's in the Super Bowl again. And where are the Patriots? Exactly where the Buccaneers were a year ago. 7-9, sitting on the couch, watching another team go to the Super Bowl. So I would feel foolish. If I was Robert Kraft, Bill Belichick, and that tire Patriots organization for driving. I know I know he left, but you drove him out of New England with the weapons you had around him. So that's on the Patriots side. Now let's get to the old stick and ball sport of baseball and talk about the Red Sox because they're starting to get more active in this offseason here for free agency. They got two good signings and then traded with their rival in New York. Ugh. That's disgusting to even say. But we'll start with 
what so far has been the big free agent acquisition, and that's Kike Hernandez from the Dodgers, signing him to a two-year, $14 million deal. Now, honestly, the way I look at it is that this is a backup plan for if they cannot re-sign Jackie Bradley Jr. Because Hernandez is basically a 2.0 Jackie Bradley Jr. He's not a great hitter, but he's strong on the defensive end in the outfield. Okay, He's a 240 career batting average, and he's got some strong, strong defense. Very strong defense out in the outfield. And honestly, I know I said a backup plan, and it's a plan B, but I think regardless of what happens for Jackie Bradley Jr., I think he could fit whether he stays or not. I think Hernandez can find him way. They talk about he's got flexibility as well in the infield. The Red Sox always love having a utility man like that, whether it was Jose Peraza last year or Brock Holt the seasons before then. But I think Kike Hernandez is a good player, maybe not a great player, but I think he can fit with this team regardless of what happens with JBJ. Now, the other free agent signing that they made, pitcher Garrett Richards. And I actually remember him because his very first major injury was his knee injury in going to cover first base in 2014 for Fenway. And I was actually there at that game, and I witnessed it. And that was not a friendly sight, but that was seven years ago. He's now signed with the Sox for one year, $10 million, which is kind of a discount if you think about it, considering what his career has been like. He's 47 and 41, a 362 ERA, just a shade over 700 strikeouts and nearly 300 blocks. Okay? And then think about what he did in 2020. Played in 14 games, started 10 of them, went 2 and 2, and a 4.03 ERA. Now, he did go to the bullpen during the Padres' postseason run, but I think that flexibility in the rotation would really help for the Red Sox. You can put him in the rotation when you see a guy go down like Martin Perez or maybe when you're waiting for Chris Sale when he's coming back from Tommy John surgery. Not only that, you can move him into the bullpen because what did this Red Sox team need? Arms in the bullpen. And he gives you that. He gives you that in the bullpen if he can't be a starter. Now, obviously the one question that will surround his career is health because last year was really his first full season And even that was a shortened season. That was only about 60, 70 games. So can he do the full 162? We don't know that. Even if he can make maybe like half of them, maybe a little more than half, I think that would be a win if you can get that one year out of it for Garrett Richards because he's he's a good pitcher. He's a good pitcher. I remember before the injury seven years ago, they were talking about him maybe being a future future all-star. But just the injuries have set him back. And, you know, now he's 32. Who knows if he's the same guy that he was in those years. Or maybe if he'll be the same guy that we saw with San Diego. But we don't know that. I like it for now. But if he can stay healthy, then I will really like it. And then, obviously, the last big move was trading with the arch-rival New York Yankees and getting what I would call an established arm in the bullpen, in Adam Ottavino. First thing I'm wondering is, why are the rivals trading for each other? Why? I obviously understand it's the Yankees trying to shed some money and the Red Sox trying to get better, but even still, making that kind of trade, just just something just 
feels it doesn't feel right. Doesn't feel right. Now he did struggle in 2020. He had a ERA that basically ballooned to almost six. But you almost feel like he's due for a bounce back. And I understand he's 35. But you got to think with an established arm in that bullpen with someone like Matt Barnes, where they could basically flip flop in the scenario of setup man or closer. Because really, Matt Barnes to me is the only established, consistent arm in that bullpen with Ottavino coming in. I mean, Ryan Brazier, Colton Brewer, Marcus Walden, I think they're too inconsistent. You can't really trust them just yet. But I like where the bullpen is going. I like the arms that they have right now. Nick Pavetta, Darwinson Hernandez, Josh Taylor. I I like the moves that they're making for the bullpen. And it may not be, you know, you're not going to see the best ERA in the bullpen. But I think you're going to see a much better pitching rotation and bullpen than you saw last year at least a stable one a stable bullpen that when you take your starter out of the game you're not going to fear for your life if they come into the game so so far so good for the Red Sox but of course the big fish to fry is getting back Jackie Bradley Jr. and I think if you can get him on some kind of a discount maybe like a two or a three-year deal I think that would be perfect for the Red Sox. And not only that, because he's a fan favorite, but he is a gold glove caliber defender that you would rather trade and get pieces for than to let him go away for free. That would just be me. Resign JBJ. So now we move on to the ice where we talk about the Boston Bruins where they've really picked up the slack and gotten on a little bit of a hot streak, winning three straight, heading into tonight's game against the Pittsburgh Penguins. So far, these last three games, they've been close, but hey, you get the two points when you get that victory. The 5-4 shootout win versus the Flyers, then beating them again 6-1, and then the 3-2 overtime victory against Pittsburgh. Now, this Bruins team, they look good, but I think they still can do a little bit better because the offensive low looks great with Brad Marchand, Patrice Bergeron, and Nick Ritchie really carrying the load right now. And then, of course, you have Tuka Rask in between the pipes being the stout goaltender that he is. But I just think the defensemen, they need to give him help. I think Tuka needs some help. Not only him, Yaroslav Halak, he needs help as well. Because they are tied for 7th in the NHL in goals allowed per game at 2.5, and, and they have the plus 11 shot differential, but they're 24th in the entire league in total save percentage. All right? You're giving all of these teams perfect opportunities because Halak and Rask can't do everything. They can't do everything. They just can't. You know, they just can't allow golden opportunities. You know, it's it's one thing. I did say the plus 11 shot differential, which is good for defenders if you want to look at it that way but it's the type of shots that you're getting you know you don't want to give them on the power play a bunch of puck movement and then firing it on in you don't want to do that you want to be able to take the puck away and not even give them a shot they gotta not be careless with the puck in turning it over don't give them any breakaway opportunities that's what these defenders have to do because Halak and Ras can't do everything They can't do everything. It's up to the defenders to really 
help them out. Now, it's still very early on in the year. We're only a couple weeks in. So I'm not going to worry about this too much until we get to maybe another two months into the year and we start to see them perform at a, at a much higher level, hopefully. Because they are going to get Pasternak back. They're going to get David Pasternak back. And who knows, this team could be, he could be the game changer where he turns everything around and we start to see a Stanley Cup caliber team. We don't know. But as of this moment, they're right now not the favorites. Because the kind of shots they're allowing is not going to win you multiple games. All right? Because you're not going to have 5-4 shootouts or 6-1 victories every single time. They need to get some regulation wins. All right? And they can't be cutting it close every single time. You got to get a good two-goal victory out of this one. And speaking of victories, they are very tough to find right now for the Boston Celtics. I mean... Last night, dropping to the Spurs. God, what a terrible six minutes in that second quarter. 26-9 to in that second quarter to the Spurs. My goodness, it was absolutely horrible. Horrible. And then earlier on, dropping the game to the 76ers both times. But I will say, it's great to see Jason Tatum back to where he was before he got COVID-19. It's good to see him back when he returned on Monday in Chicago against the Bulls. And it just doesn't look like he missed the step. He's not that ultimate knockdown shooter just yet that we saw last year and at the beginning of this year. But I think he's going to get there. Because keep in mind that last night was the first time all year that the big three of Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Kemba Walker all played with each other. And not only that, but Marcus Smart as well. You got your your core four players right there. So I'm not going to panic too much about the stretch that the Celtics have been on, losing, I think, four of their last six it was. I'm not going to worry too much because it's just going to take some time. And this is a tough stretch. I mean, the 76ers look great. They look like a top three team in the conference at this moment with the pieces that they have. And it could be like an early stretch. But like I said, this team just needs time to gel. And the Spurs went, in that game against the Spurs, Brad Stevens went about 12 or 13 guys deep. Okay? And it just, they don't feel like they're comfortable with each other and their style of play. And part of that has to do with the constant change in the rotation, with the injuries, with Tatum and Rob Williams getting the COVID-19 virus, and there's there's still a lot of moving pieces. And don't forget, Peyton Pritchard's out for two weeks with the sprained knee. But it's still, yeah, Brad is going to have to find his rotation and how they gel. Because you have your core four, but what does the depth look like? What is the depth going to look like behind him, and how is that rotation going to look? And I think it's a big game for the depth, for the bench, for that rotation this Saturday when the greatest rivalry in basketball is renewed between the Celtics and the Lakers on Saturday night. Because I think if the Celtics' depth can match the Lakers' depth, let's remember the Lakers, how deep they are. I've said it over and over and over, how many pieces they got in the offseason with Caruso and Harrell and Matthews and Dennis Schroeder. And all the pieces that they got, 
all the pieces that they got. If the Celtics' depth can match with the Lakers' depth, that will be a win. And I think the subliminal win is that if they can be competitive. Even if they lose, as long as they're competitive and they take it all the way to the end, I think you have to look at it as a subliminal win for this Lakers team. Because if you see this team and you look at that performance, if they can hang with Los Angeles and be just like, hey, you know what? We just competed with the defending champs, the Los Angeles Lakers. If you can hang around with them, I think that's a huge confidence boost for everyone on that team. Everyone on that team. Saying, hey, we hung with the champs. Why can't we be champs? But I tell you what, that is the game I'm going to watch from beginning to end with bated breath. The greatest rivalry, not only in basketball, maybe in sports between the Celtics and the Lakers. I'm going to watch that, and I'm thoroughly going to enjoy it. But, hey, this is Boston. You expect championships, and we'll see if all of these teams are able to get there in the future. time for our last segment of the episode now normally at this time we do our head scratcher lol moment of the week but we're not going to do that this week we're going to take a little bit of a pause and we're going to introduce something a little different and a little unique now everyone's got a, a love of something that might be different than what others think and it's called a closet love and my closet love is motocross and dirt bikes and all that And what's going on right now is the Monster Energy AMA Supercross season just got underway a couple of weeks ago. And so I'd like to spend a couple minutes talking about that in the newest segment I like to call Rev It Up. So the way that Monster Energy Supercross works is that you have a bunch of riders riding for a bunch of different teams. And they travel all around the country. Now, this year, it's a little bit different, obviously, because of the pandemic. So they'll be in cities for about two or three weeks before they move on. Now, they just wrapped up a three-race set over a two-week span in Houston, Texas. And there are two different divisions in Supercross. There's the 250-stroke class, which is basically like the minor leagues. And then it's the major leagues, the 450-stroke class. And I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about the 450 class and where they're at at, heading into the next set of races at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. Now, the way the point standings are right now is you have Ken Roxon, the German rider, leading with 60. Then you have tied for second Cooper Webb and Justin Barsha only down one point. And then you have the reigning champ, Eli Tomac, who's down five points. Now, to give you a little insight on what has happened recently, there was a ton of drama last Saturday night involving the race in Houston. And it involves the points leader from Team HRC Honda, Ken Roxon. Now, he was extremely upset after finishing second on Saturday night. And for good reason. He has every right. He was leading... 23 
of the 26 laps in that race because they go for 20 minutes plus a lap. And he was leading 23 of those laps, okay? And he was he was looking good. He was looking good, and it looked like he was going to get his first win of the season. But then he gets held up by a lapper by Dean Wilson, who races for Rockstar Energy Husqvarna. Now, as a lapper, if you're getting lapped and you're not on the lead lap, you have to move out of the way. The officials will wave a blue flag, and you have to get out of the way for the leaders. And Dean Wilson did not do that. He was in 11th place, and he saw 10th place right in the horizon of his vision, and he kept going. He held up Ken Roxon, and that allowed Cooper Webb, who's second in the points, to pass him on that last lap, and eventually Cooper Webb would end up winning the race. Now, if that was anyone in the situation that Ken Roxon was in, you would be furious as well. You felt like you had the win. You felt like you were going to get it. And then you get held up by a lapper. That's incredibly frustrating. Incredibly frustrating. So I sympathize with the German-born Roxon. But he shouldn't feel too bad because he looks like the most consistent rider right now in the Monster Energy Supercross series. He's in a great spot. I know he's only up one point. But we've seen in recent years by former four-time champ Ryan Dungey that just having great finishes rather than winning and winning and winning will get you to a championship. As long as you maintain that sort of top five status, then you'll be fine. You'll be completely fine. So you just can't have huge mistakes that puts you in last place or near last place. So that's the thing. For Ken Roxon, I've been a fan of his for a long time. If you don't know, he actually, Ken Roxon, had two major wrist surgeries. And I mean major wrist and arm surgeries where they almost had to amputate his arm. And he wouldn't be able to race again. But he's he's come back. He's starting to find the form that he did when he first entered the United States in 2012. And he looks like he's getting back to that form. And I think this is the year. This is the year that Ken Roxon does it. I think the number 94 for the Honda squad, Team HRC, is going to win this championship. As long as he doesn't make a big catastrophic mistake and continues these top five finishes, he'll find himself in a great position. Now, for the riders behind him, Guys like Justin Barsha riding for Troy Lee Designs Red Bull Gas Gas, which is a completely new team. He's got to win again to prove that he's not a one-hit wonder. Because for the last three seasons, including this one, he's won the season opener. But that was his only win of the year. Only win of the year. And last year, he finished fifth. In 2020, which was his best finish since his rookie year in the 450 class in 2013 when he finished fourth. Okay, so Justin Barsha needs a win. And if he has to go bam bam, if he has to go aggressive and maybe bump some people out of the way, he might have to do it. But Justin Barsha just has to avoid the one hit wonder stage in his career. 
But then there's the other guy who's tied for second in the points with him, and that is the 2019 Supercross champion, Cooper Webb, on the Red Bull KTM. Now, I'm not sure he's going to be that win-every-week kind of guy like he was for the past two years, but he's at least going to be a contender. And I just think with 2019, Cooper ran great. I thought I thought he ran great, but there were also a bunch of other great riders who just had some really bad finishes and allowed him to sort of jump up and to get that Supercross championship. Because the win last week kind of felt a little fortunate. I don't know if he's going to be able to get a win like that again. He's probably going to have a great ride, maybe pick up a few more wins, but I don't know. I think he'll be a contender, but I don't think he's going to win that championship again. I, I, I don't think he will. Because you have great guys like... This next guy I'm going to talk about, the reigning 2020 Monster Energy Supercross champion, Eli Tomac, riding for Monster Energy Kawasaki. Now, he hasn't found the consistency yet to get himself at the top of the title picture at this moment because so far in the first three races, he finished 13th, 1st, and 5th in his first three races. Now, that's inconsistency in its finest form. And he's only five points back, so it's still early on, but Tomac has just made a career of having poor starts to his season, which has ultimately set him back. There have been, in the first maybe five races or so, where he's had multiple races of finishing in the back of the pack, and which has not get, gotten him a ton of points. But last year, he finally corrected it, and he was able to ride that momentum and get his championship. But I think... It's going to have to start in Indianapolis. I think he's going to have to get another win to get himself back at the forefront, remind the entire world that he's the reigning champion and he's the reigning champ for a reason. He's been called one of the fastest guys on the track in his most recent years, and I I believe so. He's racked up win after win after win, and right now he's seventh all-time on the career wins list. I expect that number to go up, especially after this season. But does he win the championship? I don't know. Because he's going to have to maintain that consistency. Now, in this weekend for Indianapolis, those four guys are obviously going to be contenders. But watch out for some small names like Malcolm Stewart, the younger brother of James Bubba Stewart, who was once the fastest man on the planet. He's on the Monster Energy Star Yamaha, and he's been probably the second most consistent guy in the series. In the first three races, he's finished 5th, 7th, and 6th respectively. So you have to think it's time for him to get a victory. And it's also time for the sophomore rider, Adam Cianciarulo, who's also on the Monster Energy Kawasaki, because he's been making a ton of mistakes. He got his first podium of the year last week with a third in the third race in Houston, but he's just got to have a consistent 20-minute race. He hasn't been able to do that since he started in the 450s a year ago. So he's going to have to clean that up. And I think this stint in Indy for the next two weeks, there could be a chance that he gets this victory. He's known as one of the fastest riders on the track, but he just has a tendency to make the mistakes. But it'll be very exciting to watch what happens at Lucas Oil Stadium when we see the Monster Energy Supercross Series carry on.
that will wrap up another edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. And remember, if you've got something you got to get off your chest, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.